Hello, Smart Firefighting community. Welcome to a mini content series hosted at the FRI show in July 2021 down in Charlotte, North Carolina. At FRI, we interviewed a range of technology leaders at the IAFC Technology Neighborhood. So please excuse some of the background noises throughout these episodes. I want to give a special shout out to Chief Jeff Doolin for making all this happen. Enjoy the content and please let us know what you think. Welcome back, everyone. Kevin Sofin here at the Smart Firefighting Podcast. Really excited and honored to be sitting here with Battalion Chief Scott Roseberry of Garland Fire Department and Fire Chief Dan Muncy of San Bernardino. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having us here today. Hey, Kevin. It's always uh, good to talk to you. Thanks for allowing us to be on. It is a pleasure to be sitting down alongside both of you. So, Dan, we've had some good podcasts over the years, talking shop about all things fire over the years, fire innovation. But I was excited when you told me about this new presentation that you just gave about Behavioral economics with the fire service and money ball for the fire service. I can say that I've, I've probably never heard those words in, in the same sentence, in the same vein at the fire service. So tell me more. What, what are we talking about here? We're at Fire Rescue International 2021. And my mom always said, you are who your friends are. So professionally, that means go out and seek people that are better, smarter than you. And so I was blessed to uh, be connected through the National Fire Academy, the EFO program with Scott Roseberry, Battalion Chief in Garland, Texas. Scott's very well read. We've been sharing books for years. A couple of years ago, he started calling me and talking about behavioral economics. And it wasn't a subject that I was very familiar with. And he brought up the movie Moneyball. And I liked it. It was a great movie. Brad Pitt did a great job. I love baseball and I love studying the analytics of baseball. So as he was talking through behavioral economics and how it applies to decision making in the fire service, and then he started pointing out some of the irrational decisions that fire chiefs make on a regular basis even knowing that these are irrational decisions and then starting to explain what he was learning. And it just made a lot of sense to me that there was a lot of connections here to the fire chief's role and, and the positions that we're in. So when Scott called me and said, hey, this is, this is what I'm thinking about. This is what I'm studying right now. It just seemed like a great opportunity to come to FRI and present on it. So within that whole notion of making irrational decisions within the whole fire service, I what decisions have been made that maybe have caused you to want to want to talk about this and maybe where are we at today in terms of how can we communicate people to maybe take a more behavioral economics approach to life in the fire service? But I think you, what we don't realize is we're making irrational, we're, we're irrational people and we keep making rational policies and procedures thinking that people will act rationally to those. And then when they don't work, we scratch our heads and wonder, well, why didn't that work? Uh, and so, you know, when I say people are irrational, the best way to explain that is if I say I like apples over oranges and I like oranges over bananas, if I'm given all the choice of all three, I should choose apples every time over the other two. But research shows only three, 33% of the time am I going to choose that apple. 33% of the time I'll choose the banana that I said I didn't even like. And that's what we mean by people are irrational. So when we're doing that in our everyday setting, you know, it would conformities that we work in are that happens to us for in like group meetings, we get the group think. Dan, what, what else? So in our class, we talked about four different topics and those were framing, decision-making, relativity of our decision-making, loss aversion and conformity. And there certainly is a lot more behavioral economics topics. But with the issue of conformity in the fire service, we like uniformity. We like our fire engines to have the same equipment on it because that leads to better outcomes. But there's certain examples of conformity that are really holding us back. Scott just nailed two of those group meetings, especially if you're thinking differently than the group. You're under a lot of pressure 
to make decisions based on what is the popular decision. And I think a lot of our, our chief officers may realize that, but not to the extent of which they're doing that every single day. Another example is groupthink, as Chief Roseberry just brought up. Now, the best example for groupthink that I can think of is you're standing with your peers and you're looking at an emerging situation and you see it as being very dangerous or threat. I remember one of my mentors talking about a burnover that he was in and he was looking down the canyon at a wildland fire, the bottom of the canyon. And he was thinking to himself, man, I don't like standing here right in this, this valley. This fire is going to come up this canyon and our vehicles are parked here. But as he looked over to two of his peers, neither of them seemed worried. So he never said a word. Well, what he didn't know is that the peers standing next to him were looking down this canyon. They were seeing the fire below in them. They were all worried that this fire was going to come up this valley and it was going to burn over the engines. Nobody said anything. And that's a great example of groupthink. Now, uh, to finish that story, the fire absolutely did come up that canyon. It's known as the Scout 2 burnover. We're also held back with tradition and conformity. Probably the best example there is our fire helmets that we wear every single day. There's other options. There may be even be better options. That's just something we're not going to talk about because an American firefighter looks like an American firefighter. Some of the standards we've adopted over time, we, uh, we don't evaluate those standards. We keep doing the same things over and over again and trend following and social pressures are all examples of conformity. And I appreciate multiple times you've talked about just kind of humans or firefighters just making decisions based on what we've always done. And I think that's something that I've constantly come up against multiple times, whether it's within fire or water or just in general life where you, you encounter someone that has their arms crossed and says, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're always going to do it. And I say that and I always think always, I mean, like since like prehistoric, since like, you know, cavemen or, you know, is it like 50 years we've been doing this? And I'm always thinking too, it's like just because we've been doing it for 50 years doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way to do it. It is a way to do it. It is not necessarily the right way to do it. So now that you've framed this and thank you for all that, how do we break the, the link and break the chain and get us to start thinking differently so we can actually maybe reevaluate some of the, the practices, keep some of the good, keep some of the, the good solid principles of the fire service, but also rethink the way that we approach procurement, finding new technologies, and we could go down a hundred rabbit holes here, but how do we re <laughs> reframe this here? Hey, you know, it's funny, you were talking about, you know, we, we've always done it this way, we don't want to change, and that's another topic we covered, and it actually runs most of our everyday lives, is that's loss aversion, and it's the reason why we don't do so much stuff, because we don't want to lose certain things, and a great example of that is, if I gave you a $200 bottle of wine, unless you're a wine enthusiast, you'd get some enjoyment out of it, but not a whole lot, but if you know, you're making dinner for your wife and you have that bottle of wine sitting down on the kitchen counter and your kids come running through and they swing their, sling their backpack and knock that bottle of wine, it hits the ground and bust. You're going to feel more loss over that bottle of wine than you felt the gain for getting it. And that loss aversion does so much. It's why we hoard, why we keep old clothes, why we won't go to European style helmets. We're not going to lose our traditional style helmets. You know, even just changing apparatus manufacturers, you know, firefighters love them that they're, they're, you know, fickle breed. So changing the apparatus back for going from Pierce to Spartan, you know, that's, that's a loss aversion that they don't like that change. So, and then you also mentioned framing. How do we frame this? Framing is another one that we talked about and how you frame it matters. And so they're doing a lot of research right now and they're looking at how doctors frame your treatment. It makes a difference on whether or not you'll, you'll take that treatment. So say for instance, you need to have a knee operation and you go to your doctor and your doctor says, hey, Kevin, you need to have this knee operation. But if you have it, there's a 10% chance you're gonna die during the operation. Are you gonna have that? I mean, it's really gonna make you think about that. But if we frame that differently and we say, hey, Kevin, you need to have an operation, 
And if you have it, there's a 90% chance you're going to live a full, healthy life afterwards. You're more likely to do that. So we have to think about that, that framing, that conformity. Relativity is another subject and the loss aversion when we're talking to the community about community risk reduction. Because we can, how we frame the subject when we're talking about community risk reduction to our, our community will change it. And then we can use conformity and relativity. Conformity, we can show them, hey, here's what our neighbors are doing. And that, that conformity actually helps us and can help create or help us with community risk reduction in our neighborhoods. Dive a little bit more into the conformity part. I think it's, it's a challenge when, when you are, let's say, one of those outliers and you are thinking differently and you're trying to break the mold. But let's say you have five people around you that say, no, you're, you, you're an idiot or, you know, that, that's a dumb idea. I mean, it can be hard to, to be the one standing up to, to really break that, break that chain there. So, like, how do we address that and how do we move forward past that, that conformity challenge? Well, it depends on the situation that you're in, Kevin. In group meetings, uh, one of the common things that we're taught as managers and leaders growing up is to have the devil's advocate literally assign somebody to that meeting and their sole job is to think differently and to object and to put out far different ideas than anybody else and then to fully look at their objections to try to break that group think and the conformity. Some other examples, as, as Chief Roseberry mentioned, is framing. And so framing is how we're asking the question. So there's lots of questions that we can ask that are self-leading. And as paramedics growing up in EMS, we're always taught not to lead the patient. And there's certain questions that you can answer or you could ask that will lead the patient to answer a certain way, which may be totally incorrect, but they believe that they're answering truthfully. And the same thing occurs in our day-to-day -day leadership. When it comes to relativity, relativity is our brains trying to make decisions and comparisons based on two dissimilar topics or ideas. And we try to, to relate those things together so we can make evaluation over choice A and choice B. So as a leader, you want to ask questions and isolate the questions you're asking so it, it's, it can't be compared. An example that we gave in our class is you could have Fire Department A, that's a metro fire department. They have high rises. They have a very dense population. Fire Department B is a neighboring department, but they cover a rural area. And often the rural area will compare themselves to that metroplex department. It's an unfair comparison. Their missions are different. Their funding's different. Their density's different. The calls they respond on. And you can't do that. You have to frame that rural fire department with a, with a, you need to compare it with relativity to another rural fire department. And we're doing that with the accreditation process. We're doing that with the fire data lab right now, but we need to make sure we're comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges, or we just simply need to evaluate the apple by itself without comparing it to something that's, that's not where, that our brains are not able to relate to. And both of you have quite a bit of experience from, from your own work in the fire service. I mean, any firsthand examples that from framing relativity, loss aversion, conformity that you're comfortable sharing that maybe is an ex like a, a tangible example of something you saw in the past 20 years that you know maybe would approach differently now knowing what you know? Yeah, so on the framing, uh, I'll use uh, the gas leaks, for example, you know, fire, we don't like, I mean, we lose, we lose a lot of man hours, a lot of money's wasted sitting on gas leaks, waiting for gas companies to fix those leaks. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, we should start charging the gas companies for our, the man hours we're sitting on that, the, on the gas company. We could be making a lot of money. 
But saying it that way wasn't getting any attention. Well, when you change the way you frame that and you say, you know what, we're losing $80,000 a year in revenue by not charging the gas companies. Just by changing the way I frame that, you start to get some eyebrows lifted and like, well, maybe we ought to look in this. We're losing $80,000 a year. Yes, we could be making that much if we were if we changed the way we frame it and we start charging gas companies. You know, the title of, of our presentation was Moneyball for the Fire Service. And I think a lot of the listeners may be familiar with Moneyball, the movie. And Moneyball, the movie, was obviously about baseball, but it was pointing out the fallacies in baseball. And there's a scene where the, the coach is talking to the fellow that he's hired to study the baseball analytics about Johnny Damon. And Johnny's a superstar and the fans love him. And, and Johnny puts up great home run numbers and he's considered as being this key person that's carrying the team. But as he's having a conversation with his analytics employee, he's realizing that Johnny really isn't contributing as much as his paycheck would indicate that he should. And there may be other options out there. And that's a conversation that's very relevant in the fire service. And we tied back this whole conversation to community risk reduction. 95% of the nation's budgets are geared towards response to, to incidents, less than 5% is spent towards prevention. But we all know that if we can prevent incidents from ever occurring, it's going to save money. This is cost avoidance, but cost avoidance is something that's intangible. It's difficult to understand. So some of these conversations going to examining what do we do every day? What do we consider uh, integral to our operations? Many fire service still respond the same way as they did 27 years ago. An example for me is 27 years ago, our dispatch used to pick up the phone and they would say, nature of emergency and address. And 20 seconds later, they hit the button and a fire engine and ambulance would go code three to an emergency. Many fire agencies, 27 years later, they may not ask nature of emergency and address and dispatch. Instead, they're using priority dispatch. They're asking tons of questions. And at the end of all those questions, guess what they do? They send an engine and an ambulance code three. There's been no change in how they're actually responding other than they're using emergency medical dispatching and asking for a lot more information. But that failure to change the way we're responding to emergencies, to recognize that technology exists that can create efficiencies in our organizations. Uh, now granted, a lot of these organizations may not have any other response models, but wouldn't it be more efficient just to send the apparatus immediately, code three to these, these calls? So every day we're faced with new decisions, new technologies, new situations in the fire service where we respond to in traditional ways because this is the way we've always done it. It does come back to leadership. It does come back to our chief officers. One of the things that's on the back of a fire chief's mind all the time is that the average lifespan in the fire chief's career is three years. A lot of fire chiefs don't want to upset the apple cart. They want to continue doing business as usual. They want to keep up the, the, keep up the California or the, the nation's fire service traditions. They don't necessarily want to bring in changes that if they'd never grown up in the fire service, they would look at and say, man, what, what, what is the fire service doing? Why, are we, why do they continue to respond this way? One of the conversations that we were involved in recently was a study with some of the policymakers. And we, policymakers were given a white sheet and they said, we, we said, you know how are, we respond to emergencies. If you could redesign the system, would you design it the same way it is now? And the policymakers design a totally different system. You can do that same exercise with chief officers. Based on our responses, our mission, our vision right now, if you redesign this entire system, what would a response matrix look like? 
And nobody's going to plan out that we're going to respond the way that we do right now. The fire service is struck in tradition and we're ignoring some of these key inputs. And a lot of that has to do with the irrationality of behavioral economics. So I've got another one for you too. And I got something fire departments can do right now to create operational efficiencies. My energy uh, company sends me an email every week showing me my energy usage in my house. And then in the same email, it compares that usage to my neighbors. And it's using conformity. And what they've shown, research has shown, is that that is actually causing homeowners to lower their energy usage. Now, Dan makes fun of me because mine's actually 13% more than the neighbors in my neighborhood. I tell them it's because I have a bigger house. But posting those numbers is using that conformity and relativity behavioral economics. So what you can do right now is post your turnout times for your individual stations, shifts, and crews and post that, let them see what they're doing compared to the rest of the department. And if they're a whole lot higher, they're gonna conform and bring that runtime down. They're gonna work harder to, to conform and bring the runtime down to the other ones. You can also use benchmarking and say, here is the number that we want. You know, five minutes is what our benchmark is. And then that conformity, they see that. So that's something departments could do right now. So start using, posting that's runtimes. using conformity in a good way. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get, you know, put the information out there on how to use behavioral economics principles. And there's a lot more than the four that we just discussed yeah. and how to use that for to help community risk reduction, operational efficiencies, leadership. A word that I've heard you both say now multiple times is that word leadership. And it seems like that is something that is needed to be able to make any type of substantive change within the fire service, within your own fire department. What does a leader in the fire department need to do to take baby steps? Kind of like you said, a, a tangible example. Like, what are some baby steps that a leader can do from waking up tomorrow and walking in the fire department and doing what? I would say first, start researching into behavioral economics and then attribute to what it is. There's a really good book out there by Dan Arelli. It's called Predictably Irrational. I'd recommend starting off with that one and start because once you start reading that and you see what we're doing and how irrational we're acting on a daily basis, then you can start kind of putting two and two together and figure out how to how to do be a better leader and, and institute those principles into your leadership. Some other principles we're teaching our leaders is to realize simply that we are irrational as human beings. We are flawed. And as much as we think we're making rational decisions, we're influenced by the moments of our lives, the stresses of our lives other people around us, economic gain, policy decision, policymakers, the desire to be well-liked, all of those things influence our decisions and can lead to irrationality. We need to pay attention to moments like those. And we need to, to realize when there's a chance we may be irrational. And we need to step back out of that situation. We may need to just take five minutes, go into another room, and we need to start questioning some of the decisions we're making. We do need to have that devil's advocate. And if not, we need to make sure that we're that devil's advocate. So in the end, the decisions we're making have a little more rationality to it than being reactive to the situations and the stresses that we're in. And then what about that leader stepping up and, and, and putting their neck out there, and especially from having a vision and having this vision that is ultimately saying that this is the way we're gonna do it, or here, here's a path that I believe in, and this is what we're gonna follow it. What's unique about and what's, why is a vision statement so important? It's the, I'm going to hand the microphone to Scott on the vision statement, but sticking your neck out and having a vision are, are two different things. In the fire service, we're really taught to be participatory in our decision-making. Those of us that have 
unions were, were taught to make great labor management-driven decisions, 360 decisions, looking at all the stakeholders, getting more minds involved, especially those decisions that we can put off making immediately. We're also taught good in command and control and you need to make autocratic decisions. So it really is a blend of leadership. There are certain times in an organization where a leader does need to stick their neck out. And we call that courageous leadership. And that's when you have evaluated a 360 degree view of your stakeholders and realizing that every decision you make may not be popular. Too many of our leaders do try to make the most popular decision and it's a, it does affect organizations. It affects our ability to provide a great service to Mrs. Smith. Now, speaking of vision statements, let me turn that over to Scott. I will say to add on to that, leadership is a choice. And so you have to choose to, to be the leader, you know, and, and We've all been through leadership classes, and you te you, I tend to not take many notes, and I don't see many people take notes. It's because the principles are obvious. It's just obvious. We just have to choose to, to enact those and, and be that leader and stand up. Now, vision statements can and do work. The, the first thing is to write a good vision statement, a visionary vision statement. And I'm not going to get into you know, how to write one. There's plenty of literature out there. Just Google how to write a vision statement. But the vast majority of vision statements aren't written good. They're not visionary. But vision statements work based off of, uh, you can make them work based off of behavioral economics concepts. So why do they work? Well, loss aversion is one of them. And, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But another one's called the uh, virtual ownership. And virtual ownership basically means that we tend to feel like we own something before we actually own it. And it can be tangible or intangible. And an example I use is I, I bought this Megalodon shark tooth <laughs> off of eBay. I don't know why I bought it, I thought it'd be cool to have one. And uh, I went on to eBay one day and I, I bid 30 bucks for it. You know, it was like seven days out. So I was like, I'll pay 30 bucks for this. Well, sure enough, I'm the, I'm the top bidder. And I kept checking it every day and I was the top bidder. And finally, the last day, you know what happens, somebody comes in and outbids me. Well, I was like, how dare they do that? You know, and when I did what everybody else did, I went and bid more to get that shark tooth, you know, and I bid more than when I was rationally thinking about it on day one, that $30 is all that's worth. Now my irrational self takes over and says, I need to pay more for that. And I felt that loss because I felt I virtually owned that. I felt I virtually owned that. So loss aversion and virtual ownership are two keys to making vision statements work. The other key is called exposure effect. An exposure effect means that people tend to develop a preference for things that they're more familiar to. So the more you hear something, the more familiar you become with it. And I like using a, a, the, a song on the radio. Like, have you ever been down the road and you hear a song on the radio and you're like, oh, that's, that's not a good song. Mm. But have you ever found yourself a few weeks later after you've heard it again and again on the radio, you're like, hey, that song's not that bad. Can't get and out then, of your head. And then a few weeks later, you're singing along to it down, going down the road. That's that exposure effect. So tying it all up and how to make vision statements work, if you constantly hear it and you constantly talk about the vision, you start to see that vision and that's that exposure effect. So you gotta constantly talk about the vision. They gotta have, to create that virtual ownership, you gotta have a visionary vision statement. So we'll take ownership of an intangible future through that visionary vision statement and that's that virtual ownership. And then we can't imagine ourselves not being in that end state and we'll work hard to get there. And that's that loss aversion kicking in there. So if you do that with vision statements, they can and do work and motivate employees. Well said. And I mean, gosh, one of the more insightful conversations and podcasts we've had in the wild. And then you know, we're going on, on 25 minutes here, which is awesome. But just to kind of wrap it up, to give you both maybe like a, a final chance to 
you know, give any final comments, any, any other kind of final comments or anything you'd want to wrap up here in this, this conversation as we've had so far? I think we need to continue the conversations, the leadership, and we need to do, we do need to study behavioral economics and the fire service. I want to thank Chief Roseberry for bringing these concepts to my attention and then for suggesting so many great books that are out there and podcasts. If you Google behavioral economics, you'll read some great stories and you'll be able to listen to some great podcasts that directly apply to the leadership in the fire service. So thank you, Scott, for furthering myself as a leader and, and teaching me some of my blind spots and Really, this was a whole subject that I didn't know I didn't know. Thank you for the the kind words there, Dan. And, and uh, he definitely gives me too much credit. I, I was asked one time for some, you know, what advice do I have for new and upcoming leaders? And I said, you know, if you find yourself sitting at a table and you're the dumbest one at the table, you're at the right table. And when I'm sitting down with guys like you and Dan, I'm the dumb one at the table right now. So I'm at the right table. And the key is not to get up, stay at that table. And, you know, Kevin, I've been a big fan of your podcast for a while. And Usually they're all tech related. And I was, I was sitting here looking at your sign, smartfirefighting.com. It's like, well, this isn't tech related, but I guess it is smart firefighting talking about behavioral economics. So definitely go out there and start researching, looking into behavioral economics and how you can apply that into your everyday lives, not just at work. Couldn't agree more. And I, I see in the presentation that you, you showed me that you've got some book recommendations. So maybe we can get a link to that and provide that to, to give some of the recommendations for everyone listening and, and strongly encourage and a book that I just recommended to, to both Chief Muncie and, and Chief Roseberry was um, a book by Christian Masberg called Sense Making, which, which ties a lot into studying why humans do what they do and digging into the why behind everything. So really can't thank you both enough. Leadership and this concept of behavioral economics is smart firefighting and extremely relevant. So really excited to, for the feedback about this. And again, thank you both for all the leadership and the amazing work that you're doing in the fire service. It's a, it's a pleasure. And frankly, I'm not a firefighter. I haven't been in the fire service, but work with guys like you that fire me up pun intended just to wake up every morning and, and work my ass off to be able to make firefighters better faster safer at their job and again just appreciate all that you guys do appreciate it, kevin thanks for having us yeah thank you very much kevin always a pleasure talking to you cool take care thank you so much for listening to the smart firefighting podcast today if you enjoyed what you heard and got any value please drop us a rating leave us a comment or reach out to us on social media. Have a great day and together we can advance the future of smart firefighting.